For the ones who get it done, the most important part is the one you need now. And the best partner is the one who can deliver. That's why millions of maintenance and repair pros trust Granger, Because we have professional-grade supplies for every industry, even hard-to-find products. And we have same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders. But most importantly, we have an unwavering commitment to help keep you up and running. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since we discovered Spotify for Podcasters, we feel like having options like video podcasts and Q&A lets us be more creative on another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. On Twitter. Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens. Um, we've got a lot to get into because a lot of things have actually happened that have been prospects slash young player related with the Orioles uh, since we last recorded last week. Uh, just a quick recap, the Orioles have made a couple of trades, trading Hector Velasquez to the Astros. Uh, the right-handed pitcher went to Houston for a player to be named later. And Richard Blyer, who had been a pretty solid contributor to the Orioles' bullpen over the last few seasons, was traded to Miami Marlins again for a player to be named later, and we expect to see a lot of that this year, but we'll get into that in a moment. In addition, we're going to talk about seven-inning doubleheaders, what our impressions are of them from the minor league side, having seen them there for years, and how they fit into this season. Um, DJ Stewart uh, struggled before he was sent down. We're going to talk about him a little bit. Ryan Mountcastle continues to work out at Bowie, and I think like most Orioles fans, we are still anxiously awaiting to see Mountcastle. So that and some of the other topics we're going to get into today, uh, I will make a quick note that I did write a story yesterday arguing that the Orioles should bring up Ryan Mountcastle sooner rather than later. You can check that out on BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. Uh, Bob's weekly series, Three Up, Three Down, looking at the three hottest players as well as the three players struggling uh, the most on the Orioles, is back. Um, he had a story earlier this week. And, Nick, I believe you have a story coming this weekend, correct? Yep, I think Sunday is when it should go up. And uh, I think it's going to be about the bullpen. So stay on the lookout for that. Yep, so continue <laughs> to check out BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com and uh, check us out on Twitter at BSL on the Birds. Uh, to get into the transactions here, as I noted, Hector Velasquez, the right-handed pitcher, Traded by the Orioles to the Houston Astros. Um, Astros have been dealing with a lot of injuries, so they get some depth there. In addition, Richard Blyer, the South Florida native, is traded to the Miami Marlins after a few solid seasons in Baltimore. The Marlins were, at that point when they made the deal, still waiting to come back after uh, an outbreak of coronavirus in their clubhouse, forced uh, about a week-long suspension or so to their season. Uh, they resumed action this week in Baltimore sweeping the Orioles over a four-game series. Um, so I'll start with you, Nick. Uh, what were your impressions of these trades, and what sort of prospect value, if any, do you expect the Orioles to get back once we know who the players that are coming to Baltimore are? Yeah, I mean, with the Velasquez trade, you know, it's kind of I don't really have much of an opinion there. I mean, just get a lottery ticket uh, type prospect, hopefully. And uh, he was a guy that I don't think the Orioles were planning on using very much this year. Uh, I think he's a guy I don't know if very many people knew he was even on the roster. So I mean, you know, hopefully just some lottery ticket guy. See what happens with him. Uh, the Blyer trade, though, I am going to say I don't want to be that guy, but I'm going to be that guy here that says I called this. 
I knew I said we should talk about this. It was the one of the Yankees games where they had a rain delay in the middle of the game. I fell asleep, didn't finish it. So at work the next day, I had it up just on in the background watching the rest of that game. And, and I made a note just as I'm watching games, I jot notes, anything we want to talk about in the episode or anything. And I said, we need to start talking about Richard Blyer as being the guy that the Orioles trade instead of Michael Gibbons, just because he's he's healthy again, clearly. I think last year's numbers were kind of a fluke and he wasn't fully healthy. So uh, he's healthy. He looks good in those first few outings. He costs next to nothing um, versus Michael Givens, who has that extra years of control, high strikeout guy. I think the Orioles are going to hold off for a high price tag for him still. Uh, so Blyer could be that guy, that veteran that a, a bullpen looks to. Um, and then a couple hours later, it, it happens. Um, I think with that one, the type of prospect I'm looking at, um, you know, with the player to be named later, it's only because you can't trade guys who aren't on your 60 million, in your 60 million player pool. Uh, so it's kind of that way around the rule. Uh, but I, I think maybe... I thought uh, maybe like an Isaac Matson type uh, prospect, uh, maybe a guy who probably doesn't slide into our top 30, uh, but on the level of some of those pitchers that we got back in the Angels trade with Dylan Bundy uh, again, or another high-risk lottery type ticket. And if so, that's fine. You know, no one ever said a bad thing about Richard Blyer. I don't think any of us have anything bad to say about him. He's a great guy, uh, fun to watch, but you know, as a 33, 34-year-old on a rebuilding team, he didn't really have a place. So see what we get back. Yeah, the Blyer trade is much more interesting. I think, to me, it's Elias taking advantage of the Marlins' desperation. And he talked about how they had been interested in Blyer even before the COVID situation broke down. So I think this might have been his chance to get a little bit extra than they would have been willing to give up before all this stuff went down. And, yeah, I think it'll be a low-A type of arm or just some high upside, maybe low floor prospect that we have some particular interest in hopefully they have that all worked out and as soon as the season's over they'll announce who it is that'll be exciting when we accrue like five player to be named later and then at the end of the season we get to see who they all are it's like opening a christmas gift Uh, and as far as hector velasquez i think that's just elias throwing a bone to his old team and like remember this for the future in case we have any negotiations uh down the line yeah, I, I think that the Blyer trade is the one that I'm going to be watching a lot more closely. Um, like Nick said, I don't expect there to be... I would be surprised if the players, player or players that come back in that trade make our top 30 list when it's updated sometime over the offseason. But I still think the Orioles might be able to get maybe the next version of Richard Blyer, the guy that kind of flies under the radar in the minor leagues. But, you know, maybe you have someone that's close to a major league ready product you get back from Miami. Or like Bob said, someone in low A who is kind of a higher risk prospect, but definitely someone with some potential. So I'm intrigued to see what the Orioles do there. But in both cases, it was really driven in part by the Marlins and the Astros not having a lot of depth uh, when they made the trades. And I really expect that as the season goes on, we might see a few more types of trades along those lines where the Orioles trade from their bullpen, trade from their bench for send off a major league player for a player to be named later to a team that really needs the help. Yeah, Cole Sulcer. That's the next name I'm throwing out. (laughs) He might be a keeper, but I wouldn't be surprised either. But another thing to note is Blyer's, what, 31 years old? He's a little bit, even though he doesn't have much service time, he's a little bit older of a relief prospect, and he is what he is at this point. So I I don't think he's going to start getting expensive as he gets into his arbitration years. So another thing is, I don't think they they wanted to go into arbitration for three years with Richard Blyer. Yeah, so I'm looking this up now. Richard Blyer is 33. Oh, Um, even older. Yeah. Yeah. So he's eligible for free agency. Baseball Reference. Puts it at 2023, which I believe means he will actually be eligible for free agency after the 2022 season. So the Marlins, if they keep him throughout that duration, have about two and a half years of a pitcher who finds success despite not striking people out. He, you know, he doesn't generate a lot of strikeouts. In fact, he generates very few. But one thing that I think we can say positive about Blyer over his tenure was you could bring him out in the bullpen. He was going to throw strikes. Yep, yep, that's yep. definitely true. And it seemed like the his teammates liked him a lot. He seemed like a guy that was loved in the clubhouse. 
hopefully the young guys learned a lot from him and can take it take it away with them uh, moving forward. Yeah, I think that's interesting about the arbitration thing, though. And I can't remember where I saw this, but I think the Orioles have like nine or ten uh, arbitration eligible guys next year, so that could add help add to that more trades as the season goes along. Although we're trade deadlines are about three weeks away, so we'll see, <laughs> yeah. see what happens there. Yeah, we are coming up quickly on that August thirty first deadline. I actually saw that Nick as well, the list of players, and I'm going to try to track that down uh, before the end of the show and kind of give listeners a sense of where the Orioles stand right now with players that will be arbitration eligible after the season. But um, another topic we wanted to get into is the implementation of seven-inning doubleheaders, which for those of us that have been following minor league baseball for a long time are not an uncommon thing because seven-inning doubleheaders have been the norm in minor league baseball for years and years. Major League Baseball, meanwhile, has stuck to nine-inning doubleheaders, traditionally in a day-night format, which you don't see in the minor leagues. It's generally just one gate opening for two games. Uh, For this season, though, MLB going with the seven-inning doubleheaders. Uh, Bob, what is, first of all, your overall, how do you feel about seven-inning doubleheaders, and what do you think of MLB going to it for this year? In general, when it comes to minor leagues and how they do it, I think it makes complete sense. They don't have a minor league. Minor league teams don't have another minor league team that they can just grab from if they need extra arms on the day after a doubleheader. So it helps, and winning is not the number one prerogative in the minor league. So it just it makes complete sense down there. And for this year to implement it, I think, yeah, it's fine. I mean, do whatever you got to do. Any rule changes you got to make for this year just to get through it. Yeah, that's fine with me. Long term, I don't know about implementing it long term. Uh, let's just see how it goes this year before I really make a determination on how I feel about that. But my first reaction is this year, perfectly fine. I get it. Mm, and let's see what happens after that. I love the 70 doubleheader. Just from watching it in the college ranks, watching it from the minor league perspective, they're quick, they're fast-paced typically. And it seems like in the minor leagues, though, that first game is going to go into extra innings at least. Um and then by the second game, I will admit, sometimes I've been to those games, especially if it's like a getaway day, that second game is over in like an hour and 45 minutes because guys are just swinging at everything. But I love them. Uh, moving forward, do I want to see them? Honestly, I wouldn't be mad if they scheduled some of these like Saturday. Uh, do Saturday, start at 12, 1230 at Camden Yards. You watch two seven-inning games, go out to dinner, you're still in bed by 10 o'clock at night. Like, Sounds like a great day to me. But um, for this year, it makes complete sense uh, just because you look at the Cardinals. I think just earlier today, a couple hours ago, uh, they had more positive cases. So I think they're playing the Cubs uh, this weekend, and it doesn't look like they're going to be playing not the anymore. Cubs. <laughs> yeah, not tonight at least. I think that's the only thing official that I've seen so far. So I believe the, the numbers that I saw were 55 or 56 games in like 49 days. And so you've they've got to play doubleheaders. And the seven inning games, you know, if you got a pitcher that can go six innings, you're really saving your bullpen there. So bullpen arms uh, are rested. Uh, just the players on the field having to play so many games are going to be rested. Um, again, they move fast. You watch those games. I watched the Orioles Marlins series. Both of those games, thank God, they were only seven <laughs> innings. We don't have to watch any more of that. Uh, I watched the you know Trevor Bauer and his uh, complete game that he pitched. Uh, the Reds and Tigers were the first two teams to do it. Two and a half hour games, move along, go to the next one. It's 2020, so you know, I'm fine with them this year. And you know, save, save those arms. That's all I got to see. We've already seen injuries pile up. So, Yeah, I, I think most of the moves that MLB has made this year have been with an eye towards trying to minimize uh, wear and tear on players, whether it's position players who are going to play both ends of a doubleheader or just the team's bullpen use. Some of the moves they've made have been things I'm not crazy about, like putting the runner on second base in extra inning games, which, by the way, in seven inning doubleheaders, we should note, means that a runner will go on second base if the game goes into the eighth inning. Um, But seven inning doubleheaders for this year, I think, make perfect sense. Uh, With the number of games that are going to have to be made up because of coronavirus, you know, outbreaks, hopefully it doesn't happen again beyond the Cardinals, but we, you know, can't count on that. And just general weather issues, you're going to have to play a lot of doubleheaders. And I think going to seven innings for this year is smart. Um, 
I'm willing to kind of wait and see whether it's something I want to see in Major League Baseball after this year, but for this year, I think it's the right move. I'm actually growing on the, or the extra inning rule is actually growing on me where the runner's on second base. I think it's at actually an interesting strategic element to things. Uh, so I actually, at first I said, yeah, that's something good for this year, but not for the future. And now I'm like, well, maybe that could stick around just like the DH bring on robo umps. I'm not a traditionalist, like a lot of baseball fans. So bring on all the changes. Let's, let's liven this thing up. Oh, the robo umps. That's the key word. I, I tweeted <laughs> I know this from the account. This, Nick. Yeah. I tweeted this from the account. I'm team robo umps and it's not just the Orioles games and some of those bad calls. Cause like I watch more baseball games this year than I care to admit. Cause I don't want to be judged for how much baseball I'm watching and it's bad all over the league. Uh, you've seen managers get ejected. It was the Padres the other night, Manny Machado had a, a called strike. That was that was a ball. That was a more borderline call. But and you see the Padres manager J- Jace Tingler get thrown out, and that's you've seen that a few times. Because uh, soon as they come out for arguing balls and strikes, the umpires aren't going to listen. Which watching umpires and coaches go at it in 2020 is also hilarious um, when they have to like pause to put your mask on. But yeah, the runner on second I think is growing on a lot of people. I still don't know how I feel about that one, uh, but yeah, the robo umpires. I think let's let's go ahead and I think it might be time. Yeah, I, I expect that it's you know this year with um, the Atlantic League not really having its season, and then minor league baseball not having a season. MLB lost an oppor- some opportunities to test the robo ump a little bit more, but I think that's going to continue to be a topic of conversation for the next few years. Um, so the Orioles, after the doubleheader on Wednesday, where they were swept by the Marlins, um, Opson DJ Stewart, who had been on the initial roster to start the season, uh, down to Bowie. So he's going to go down there for instruction after a run in Baltimore that was not very good. Uh, he went 0 for 14 in eight games, made 22 plate appearances overall. In that stretch, he walked six times but struck out eight. Um, now the Orioles have a lot of outfielders in their player pool still, including Ryan Mountcastle, who we're going to talk about in a little bit. But needless to say, uh, Stewart might not be one of the first guys they call upon uh, if they need outfield help here in the next few weeks, given his struggles early on. Uh, Bob, what were your impressions of Stewart, and does this kind of change your expectations for him long term? I mean, it's only 21 plate appearances, so it's really hard to – determine much from that and he did walk six times but clearly he wasn't picking up the ball very well out of pitcher's hands eight strikeouts really not very competitive up there at the plate I've always had a soft spot for DJ Stewart especially last year when he was raking at AAA I thought finally he's going to get his chance and then of course he gets hurt and can't really get the playing time to give himself a shot coming into this year but I just feel like he's going to get squeezed out this was like the year I think he could have made an impression for the longer term. And starting next year, you're going to have guys like Diaz, McKenna, Mountcastle, all these outfielders, Hayes, Santander, Mancini. I just think it's going to be harder and harder for him to find playing time on this team. And I, I hope he can show them something uh, at AA and come back a little bit later in the year and get one more chance. But I think uh, his days as a Oriole regular might be coming to an end. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I, I'm pretty much done with DJ Stewart after these few games. Uh, I've been a big DJ Stewart guy for a long time. Uh, you know, he's a notoriously slow starter, as is, and so in injuries last year really limiting him. So I was excited to see to know that he was going to be healthy when this season started, and I was hoping he would take advantage of it. But you know, as I want to write him off right now and just say he's done. You know, kind of just follow what I think a lot of people. You know, on if you follow along with Orioles Twitter online. I think a lot of people are pretty much over DJ Stewart, but then you just look and, and see like he hasn't really had any plate appearances at the major leagues. And then when you look at some of those minor league numbers, just his progression through the minor leagues, you know, he, he raked in high A, he raked in double A. Um, he hasn't really hit the ball very well. You look at like a 230 batting average when he was in Delmarva, but a 366 on base percentage. And it's been those kind of numbers as he's moved up through the ranks. But you look at his WRC Plus numbers, and they're 135, 137, um, you know, 139 at AA and AAA and high A. So you want to say there's something there. He can do this. He can get on base. But, yeah, I, 
I just didn't see anything in these few plate appearances that say, you know, DJ Stewart's going to be that guy, that starter. It, I don't think I think that's definitely out of the question, but. I don't know if he's going to get many more chances because, like you said, I had that written down too. You, even guys like Kerstad, uh, some of the guys in the 2019 draft class, guys like Kyle, Kyle Stowers, some of those younger guys, not to mention Mountcastle Diaz and McKenna's, they're all coming up, and I'd much rather watch them than DJ Stewart at this point. Yeah, I agree. And I, you know, the Orioles, top to bottom, their outfield depth is solid. Um, and that causes some problems for Stewart because. You know, as the McKenna's and the Diaz's progress and Mountcastle as well, uh, it is going to squeeze him out more. Uh, Stewart, I've always had some questions about, and my thought has always been the best-case scenario might be that he fits in as a part-time player who brings you value on offense mainly by getting on base a lot. He'll get on base. I've never thought that he was going to emerge as a big-time power hitter, but especially with the short ports in right field at Canham Yards, gets on base, hits for enough power, doesn't hurt you so much on defense in left field that you're willing to give him a platoon role. I've always thought that might be the best case. I've thought for a while it might be the best case scenario with DJ Stewart. He didn't look good at all when he was up, and I was not surprised that he was sent down, um, especially because the Orioles do have other options down in Bowie that they could look at later in the year, not to mention... A number of outfielders are there. Long term, my expectation for right now is that maybe Stewart is back at Norfolk at the beginning of next year, just because you are going to have Trey Mancini back. The Orioles are going to have to figure out what to do with Mancini. I think Mountcastle factors into the lineup somewhere next year. Um, I don't know that I see Renato Nunez going anywhere. And Chris Davis, until Chris Davis says, I've retired, or the Orioles say, the day of release, Chris Davis, I'm not expecting him to go anywhere until that contract's up. So you still have to account for those options being ahead of Stewart next year and the fact that Stewart really didn't catch in on the opportunity he got at the start of the season. Yeah, his best role might have been like a pinch hitter, backup, fifth outfielder on a National League team. And with the Universal DH, that, that option might be out the window too. And uh, I thought it was funny that Locked on Orioles tweeted out, what is the peak of DJ Stewart look like? And I, I responded, uh, September 2018, because he had a great month. <laughs> and then, unfortunately, he never able was never able to uh, get back to that at the Major League level. Yeah, I just pulled these up, too, when you are talking about, you know, a platoon guy. His last 2019 numbers versus the lefties, he hit 333, but he had no home runs and two doubles. But against righties, he only hit 190, but that's where all his power came from. He hit four home runs. So I, I have yeah, no idea tough. what to think about him. So I don't know. Yeah, it, to me, he's always had kind of an odd profile because he doesn't necessarily scream out right fielder to me, but he seems like he might be okay in left field. I think he runs a little bit better than what his body type suggests, but he's not going to steal a lot of bases. He might hit some home runs, but he's not going to hit enough to justify an everyday corner outfield spot. So it's really just a question then of can he get on base? Can he hit for enough power in the right situations? And is his defense at least adequate? It's a very good point. Yeah, it, it's tough. It's tough to because you don't want to bail on a former first-round pick. But at the same time, Stewart also is going to be uh, 27 in November. Uh, the Orioles have a lot of outfield options, so I don't know what this is going to mean for him going forward. It's crazy Could that join. he's 27. A guy like DJ yeah. Stewart is 27, but Miguel Castro is like 25. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe he can join Adam Jones in the KBO. In, uh, uh, or not the KBO, is uh, MPO. Where did Adam Jones go? <laughs> yeah, he went over to Japan. Okay. Yep. That could be a good option for him. You see a lot yeah. of guys, DJ Stewart type guys, go over there. So. Tweener, yeah, 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 and it's uh, certainly something to keep an eye on, uh, not just for the rest of the season, but into the off season to see what the Orioles decide they want to do with DJ Stewart. Um, shifting gears now, we're going to go from an outfielder who has just been sent down to the player pool to an outfielder that we have been basically saying we want up from the player pool. Uh, since this season started, and that's Ryan Mountcastle. 
Mind you that we really don't know what goes on to player pool. So it's not as though I can rattle off that Mount Castle hit four home runs in an inner squad game yesterday. I have no clue what Mount Castle is really doing beyond what has sort of been reported by various news outlets, which is that the Orioles are focusing on his defense and his plate discipline. Those are the two main areas of development that they want to uh, see with Mount Castle. At the same time, as I wrote yesterday on Baltimore Sports and Life, um, the Orioles have gotten very little production from their left fielder so far this year. And while I think Dwight Smith is a decent hitter in the right role, specifically against right-handed hitters, uh, Mount Castle has a higher ceiling. And Smith, uh, it's worth noting, has really struggled over the course of his career in left field. So if the Orioles anticipate that Stewart's going to, or um, I'm sorry, Smith, is going to get most of the at-bats with... Uh, Stewart now down at Bowie, maybe Mountcastle's defense in that context doesn't look so bad. Because now you're looking, all right, well, Mountcastle's defense is not great, but it's not as though he's out there taking innings away from a defensive specialist. Because uh, Dwight Smith has certainly not been that in his career in left field. So I'll start with you, Nick. Uh, should we be watching Ryan Mountcastle right now, and when will we be watching Ryan Mountcastle? We should be watching him right now. End of story. Um... No, I've I got some numbers here that I pulled out. Um, yeah, so first of all, just don't tell me that he needs to work on his defense and walk rate when, like you said, you got Dwight Smith Jr. out there, and he was that last night where he just let a, a ball that was dribbling towards him, he dropped, or he let roll past his glove, and a, another run scored. Like, that's, you cannot make that kind of play. But, and then you look at guys like Alberto and Santander both have 2% walk rates right now. Jose Iglesias has not walked all season. So clearly walks and bad defense are not an issue for the Orioles, or they're not an issue that the Orioles really seem to care about having in their lineup this year. Uh, but here's Ryan Mountcastle, uh, his minor league production. So in Delmarva, he was 19 years old, and he had 42 extra base hits and a 745 OPS. The average age of pitchers in the South Atlantic League that year were 21.8 years old, so over two years older. In Frederick, he was 20 years old, put up an 885 OPS with 51 extra base hits. The average pitcher was, again, uh, 2.8 years older than Mountcastle. Bowie, same thing. He was 21. The average pitcher was 3.5 years older than he was, at 24.5 years old. 806 OPS. Uh, and in Norfolk, he was 22 years old, 61 extra base hits, 871 OPS, MVP award, and the average pitcher was 4 years older than him. Like, the guy is raked against top, older talent at least. Um, Go on our Twitter account, and I tweeted the video out again. There's Ryan Mountcastle, just a home run montage, hitting home runs off guys like Dylan Cease and Tuki Toussaint, who put in a magnificent performance last night against the Blue Jays. Um, the guy can hit big league pitching, and I shouldn't get this upset over this, but it's the Orioles know how to handle the prospects better than we do, obviously. you know We're just fans, but we want to see him. We're, we're like the only team who hasn't brought up a top prospect at this point. Um, you lose four straight to the Miami Marlins, who are off for 10 days, and you, you look at the outfield production, guys, I don't think any outfielder has a WRC plus over, like, 25. Keeping in mind that 100 is league average, uh, which tells you everything we need to know. John Mealy did put out that article. I don't know if you guys read it about uh, kind of the look inside of what they were doing with Mount Castle, studying Mike Trout heat maps and working on his defense and stuff, and which was a nicely timed piece considering all the, the attention Mount Castle has been getting. But, you know... In that same article, he says, well, we work on this stuff in the morning, and then he goes off and faces live pitching, and he hit a home run the other day against Eric Handhold. Okay, it's Eric Handhold. Like, I, you're not going to get better facing Eric Handhold and Tom Eshelman down in Bowie. Like, start him already. There, there's no point in this. I don't get it anymore. Not only... Do we are we only like the oh, excuse me <laughs> I can't speak uh, are we not like the only team that doesn't have a top prospect up I think there's been eighty players make their major league debuts this year and the Orioles have zero of them so it's a little frustrating especially when we're clearly one of the worst teams in the league we have a lot of decent young players and they're just not giving them the time of day right now as a fan and. As an Orioles fan, yeah, I want Mountcastle up yesterday. But I actually do believe that they're keeping him down to work on his defense. I think the time has passed. If if they were literally just wait, playing the waiting game to get past that, you know, service time clock, 
he'd be up right now. I think they just want to get his defense in left field at least to a respectable enough level where they don't have to worry about teaching him how to play it in the middle of the season. I just don't think they, no matter what, I don't think they can wait too much longer, even if his defense never gets up to the level they want it to. Clearly, the guy can rake. He would infinitely help this lineup right now, and he should be up no later than next week. Well, you know, I I really am a, a staunch believer that Mountcastle should be up right now. Um, and I didn't get into this in my piece yesterday, but next right, the Orioles just across the whole outfield this year have really not gotten much production at the plate. Now, you know, you could look at some of the numbers and say, well, maybe in particular Smith, Santander, and Hayes start to turn around a little bit. But at the same time, one of the most high upside hitters in your organization is right there. He's right on the cusp of the major leagues. I think if the season had gotten started as it was supposed to have before the pandemic and we had minor league baseball, we had a full 162-game MLB season, Mountcastle would already be up. Not only would he not only be up, I think he probably would have been up for a couple of months. Um, I And I know that the Orioles are doing what they can at the player pool, and I think that experience is going to be valuable for a lot of players. But at the same time, like Nick said, these inter-squad games, and Mountcastle's just going up there dominating um, you know, the Tom Esselmans of the world, it's not doing much for his development. You got to get him up. You got to get him facing major league pitching, or at least pitching from outside your own organization, um, and see what he can do. You know, I'm not going to say that I, I think that Mountcastle would come in and win Rookie of the Year. I'm not going to go that far, but I do think that even if he comes in, um, if the strikeouts are a little high, the walks aren't exactly where you want them, he's still going to hit for power. He's still going to hit home runs, and he will make the lineup better. His defense, you know, I do think that's been, I think that's a legitimate area of concern. I'm not sure yet that he's a long-term left fielder, but I think this season is the perfect time to experiment with that. Bring him up, see what he can do over, you know, the balance of this year in left field. If you don't like what you see, you can still have the option to DH him or put him at first base from time to time. And then you figure out over the offseason, okay, from what we saw this year, can we say to Ryan Mountcastle, work on this specific part of your defense over the offseason, we're going to work on it repeatedly at spring training, and we're going to hope that it gets better, or do you just you know, wash your hands and say Mountcastle's a first baseman and that's it? Regardless, though, I think the Orioles are better off putting him at the major league level to find that out than they are leaving him in Bowie. It's a good point, and... Even if he comes up and struggles with the bat, at least he's getting experience against major league pitching, and he'll have a taste of it. He can work on whatever he needs to work on in offseason and come into 2021 with a better game plan. Part of me wonders if the reason we haven't brought up any prospects yet is Elias maybe was scared the season was going to get scrapped and didn't want to waste a year and just wanted to hold back a little bit longer to see if the season did end, then they could just wait till the three weeks into next season to start the clocks on teams uh, on these players. And maybe now that it seems like no matter what, Major League Baseball is going to push through, even if 600 other players get COVID, maybe then we'll soon we'll start to see these guys come up. Yeah, and you know, it's I hate to get so impatient about it, but it's like we've all we've watched him so much on the minor leagues, and we know what he can do. Uh, but I did appreciate a, a lot John Muley's article. Uh, I can't remember when it came yesterday or today, uh, but you know, I did really appreciate it. And some of the points he made being like, the Orioles want to make sure he has left field down as much as he can before you throw him to the Wolves. And, and I agree with that. Using things like a striped baseball so he could follow the spin on his throws, like that's that's pretty cool. And I trust Mike Elias and the Orioles staff down there in Bowie are doing the right thing preparing these guys all the way. Uh, we saw what the minor leaguers did last year at all levels. I'm trusting the process until Michael Elias gives me a reason not to. We talked about that before, like in our post-draft episode. Um, but again, with a guy like Mountcastle, though, I, I see this year being an opportunity to, you know, he's, he's a young guy, get him up in that clubhouse. He can watch the guys like you know, the Jose Iglesias, uh, the, these guys who are cast-offs, the Pat Vallecas, that he can watch these cast-offs have 
kind of resurgence this year. Watch how they go about their business. Uh, he can kind of create those friendships, those that leadership opportunity in the clubhouse this year. And he can come out as a starter next year and become an, an early leader in what's probably going to be a really young clubhouse. Mountcastle could be your guy. You know, Chris Davis may or may not be back next year. Uh, why not turn the torch over to Mountcastle? I know Trey Mancini is still going to be there, true. But those younger guys could look up to Mountcastle and say, you just went through this. That's who I'm going to look up to right now. It had a transition into pro ball. And, you know, we'll see if it comes up. I, I hope it's soon. But, yeah, I'm, I'm also not going to be surprised if it's September before we see him. Yeah, you know, and I, the John Mioli story was really good. And, I, you know, it does give you some insight into an area where we're kind of, you know, a lot of us are kind of in the dark about exactly what goes on to player pool. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it takes a little while, but I just still think that, as Nick said, there's going to be some value in Mountcastle coming up this year. And going, you know, regardless of whether he hits the ground running or he struggles a little bit, getting that time under his belt will help him next year. I really believe that. And I noted in my story that we have actually seen Mountcastle bounce back from a bad promotion before. And that was when he went to Bowie in 2017. His numbers there, you know, I think relative to his age, the competition level weren't bad, but they certainly were not what we had seen from him before that. Bounce back, 2018, goes back to Bowie and has a great season. So we have seen Mountcastle overcome rough passes in his development before. Yeah, and just be thrown around the ballpark, like every position, and he takes it in stride. So, I mean, I think the kid is clearly a leader. Uh, on and off, I don't know him off the field, so I I can't say that. But on the field, the, the guy's a leader. I feel like, and he does it with his bat. You know, yeah, the strikeouts are, are an issue to low walks, but you know, a lot of people always make note of what how great of a two strike hitter he is, and you know, and so again, hopefully it's soon. That's all I got to say. I think Ooh. I was actually expecting it today. After getting swept by the Marlins for four games, I, I said I bet he gets called up today only because the Orioles know like we need fans to tune in on Friday and watch this game, so we're going to bring him up. But it didn't happen. Based on anecdotal evidence, it seems like he has that growth mindset that Elias and Sig are looking for. So hopefully he's taken in all the lessons. And do we have a, a prediction for when we do think we'll see him? So we'll uh, see what happens with Mountcastle here over the coming days and weeks. But uh, we also wanted to get into some players that have been added to the Orioles player pool um, in recent days. So earlier this week, um, Kyle Bradis, Ryan McKenna were both added. Bradis was acquired in the deal of Centil and Bundy, the Angels. McKenna has been in the system for a while, added to the 40-man roster over the offseason, an outfielder. And then Bruce Zimmerman, who... We were all kind of wondering why Zimmerman was not in Bowie right away. It turns out that he had tested positive for coronavirus last month. Fortunately, is healthy now and uh, will be getting some time in Bowie and could be someone that we see either in the bullpen or in the rotation later this year. Um, today, the Orioles also announced that they've added Gunnar Henderson, uh, their second pick in the 2019 draft to the player pool, a young player who is years away from the major leagues, but someone we're very anxious to see on the field. And Brian Gonzalez, who was not a name that uh, any of us necessarily thought would be added to Bowie, but it does give the Orioles another left-handed option out of the bullpen, uh, so they need help later in the season. Uh, Bob, what are your thoughts on some of the players that the Orioles have added in recent days? Well, I definitely was glad to see Zimmerman make the list, and it makes total sense now in hindsight why he wasn't on the original pool because he had such a great early spring training and seemed to impress the team and the and the manager and all that. So glad he's recovered from COVID and he can hopefully get his strength back and get his pitch count up and maybe we'll see him sometime in August or September. McKenna makes a lot of sense. He can give you speed and defense if nothing else and get geared up towards helping us towards the end of the season or at least ready for next season. Bradish was a little surprising, but the Orioles must just like him quite a bit after acquiring him from the Angels. Gunnar Henderson, I assumed he would show up eventually. Uh, clearly one of our best prospects, even though he's super young, he has a ton of potential and you want to get him as much you know, quality coaching as you can 
<laughs> yeah, Brian Gonzalez, um, that was definitely out of left field. I was surprised it wasn't a guy like uh, Zach Lowther or Alexander Wells, but maybe he's a guy that is on the fringes of being a minor league free agent after the season, and they want to just see if he can sink or swim. Maybe they just want to give him in here to give some of – I haven't really looked at the roster of Billy. If maybe there's a lack of lefties, crafty lefties, and they want to see what Mountcastle can do against someone like that, I'm not really sure, but I'm sure they have a reason for why he was added to the list. It does look like he's, I don't know if he was Rule 5 draft eligible last year as well, but he's definitely Rule 5 draft eligible this year, Gonzalez is. Um, that's That was definitely a surprising one. I think he was a guy who early on last year, they converted him to a reliever. He was a starter throughout his career. Um, third round draft pick back in 2014, which I believe that was the year where the Orioles didn't have a first or second round pick. Uh, and so I think Brian Gonzalez was their first draft pick that, that year. I, I didn't check that. Uh, so I, I could be wrong there, but I believe that's right. Um, and you know, he's just an average starter. He worked pretty slowly through the minor leagues, but he got up to Bowie this year and they moved him to reliever and his numbers were a little bit better. The guy that's not going to strike a lot of people out, uh, walks are iffy, although he, he really cut down on his walk rate this year. But he had a 4.32 ERA out of the pen. Uh, he had a, a 5.69 ERA in Bowie last year as a starter. So I don't know how much you're going to get out of Gonzalez. I love that Gunnar Henderson is up. That's a young kid who only got half a season last year in rookie ball. And now I think this year him missing a whole year of development could be uh, pretty rough. So I'm glad he's up there. But it's at 59 now. And I don't believe any of the 2020 draft picks are up, which is weird to me considering they're all mostly except those those last two picks those were advanced college sec bats and you think they could be contributors in 2022 2023 uh so and they didn't really get to play at all this year in college level so they they've got a whole year now that they're going to miss out on development so i'm, I'm wondering maybe that last spot is cursed dad i don't know but i feel like at this point you're going to save that that last spot for a free agent or a trade or, or whatever it may be so and it's interesting yeah, I, I'm kind of surprised, too. I thought at the bare minimum, Kerstad um, would be a guy out of the 2020 draft class who went to Bowie, and maybe he could still go there, but certainly the Orioles pushing their limit right now. Um, Gonzalez, for me, is kind of an interesting addition. It's not someone that I would have expected to be a fit at the major league level this year, and I still think that if, uh, you know, three, four weeks from now the Orioles need a lefty, Zimmerman's got to be one of the first guys they look at. Um, but Gonzalez did cut back on the walks last year, and he would have been the guy coming into this year, even if he had gone back to Bowie initially, who I think would have been sort of on the radar a little bit to see, okay, can the improvements that we saw last year after he moved to the bullpen carry over this year, and is there something there, or is this just kind of an outlier? Is he really the pitcher that we saw earlier in his career? Um, the rest of that group, McKenna, I do think there could be a role for later this year, especially because as Bob mentioned, if nothing else, he gives you speed and defense. So let's say you have Mountcastle up there, you want to leave him in left field, but you're finding as time goes on, okay, we don't really want him out there for the last six outs of the game in a tight game. McKenna becomes the guy that you put out there. You could put McKenna, I think, really at any of the three outfield spots on a short-term basis and have that work. Um, I think he's going to need more time in the minor leagues next year just to get that back going, if they're going to try to get that going again. But I think for speed and defense, he can help the Orioles this year. Um, Henderson, I love the move to bring him there. Uh, this was someone I had pretty high hopes for coming into 2020. Um, and for me, he's one of the big wild cards and that we don't know what the lost year of development with not having a minor league season is going to do for him. Will it prove to be a setback, um, or is it going to be one of those things where he's young, he stays focused, um, while the shutdown goes on, he does well at the player pool, and it has no effect at all on his timeline in the majors. He's kind of a wild card to me, so I'm glad to see the Orioles are putting him in Bowie for a little while. Yeah, one more point I just thought about with Brian Gonzalez. The Orioles did that with a, a couple of their guys down in Bowie last year. The guys who were kind of fringy starters, 
have a few good outings, but then you know they're gonna for every good outing they're gonna get rocked twice. Um, a guy like Christian Alvarado, who is honestly probably my favorite minor leaguer in the entire system. Uh, if you were to ask me who my favorite Baltimore Orioles minor leaguer is, it's not Mount Castle, it's not Grayson Rodriguez, it is honestly Christian Alvarado. I can't tell you why. I just love watching that guy pitch, and he worked as the Bowie closer, had 15, 16 straight save opportunities. He was fantastic at the bullpen. Touch it. I think he touched like 97, 98 last year. Uh, he wasn't that great in spring training. I think he was with spring training with the Orioles, the first spring training this year. Uh, but it's still, you got two examples there, guys who they converted from starter to reliever, Hunter Harvey being another one, the, the big one there, Dylan Tate. Now I'm just thinking about the bigger names now that I'm talking <laughs> about it. But like, Gonzalez isn't at that level, but the Orioles seem to be having success doing that, so I guess why not give him a shot? Yeah, and uh, circle back to an earlier point that Nick brought up on Gonzalez. Gonzalez was the top pick in that 2014 draft uh, coming in the third round. Uh, interestingly enough, the best pick in that draft so far has been the 11th rounder by the name of John Means. Um, that is interesting. <laughs> so he's by far been the best player taken for the Orioles in that draft. Stevie Wilkerson was also selected as an 8th rounder. And Tanner Scott um, was chosen in the sixth round. And I know that we, if you follow at BSL on the Verge um, on Twitter, you'll note that there's been a lot of Miguel Castro talk there. Um, <laughs> so I wanted to make sure we uh, allowed time to discuss Miguel Castro because I know that Nick has a lot to say about what he has seen from Miguel Castro this year and what he likes. Yeah, I wonder who's in charge <laughs> of the Twitter account. <laughs> I'm just saying... 6.1 innings, four hits, no runs, one walk, eight strikeouts. He leads all of Major League Baseball in reliever wins above replacement at 0.4. He's hitting 98. He's got a 92-mile-an-hour changeup. Like, I'm, I don't want to say I'm sold yet, but I'm so glad to see that he's doing well. Uh, it's just the entire bullpen, really, as a whole. You know, uh, Looking at the bullpen, again, for my article on Sunday, which I think is going to be about... These guys, um, they ranked eighth in all of baseball in combined bullpen war. Uh, they're not allowing home runs, which they led the league in last year. Uh, they've, they've got a 4.20 ERA, but a 3.01 FIP. So uh, maybe a little bit bad luck on their side, which that's ranked seventh in the majors. Top ground ball percentage in the majors. And like, sorry, Bob, but if you take out Cody Carroll's numbers, like, uh, they'd be even better. Uh, you know, so, which again, Cody Carroll was a great pick. I, I was all aboard the Cody Carroll hype train, but um, the bullpen's solid so far this year. And Miguel Castro is leading the way. So hopefully he keeps it up. He's He could blow it up this weekend. I don't know. They're playing the Nationals right now. I don't know what the score or what the inning is, but it's almost seven nothing. Oh. The Orioles. Oh, Tommy so... Malone is a force. So, I mean, they could bring him in now and we end up losing this game and Miguel Castro error is over, but I love what I'm seeing out of him so far this year. No, to be fair, he has looked outstanding. I think he's touched 99 on that sinker with that nasty changeup, which I thought was his fastball the first time he came in. And I'm like, oh, wait, no, he, now he's throwing in a pitch seven mile an hour faster. He has let a couple inherited runners score, but I'm he miles better than the last couple of years. Sometimes I guess it just takes some time for mechanics to get ironed out and uh yeah i would love if he turned into like with michael givens likely on the way out maybe miguel castro slides into that eighth inning role yeah i i've always felt like castro is a better pitcher than what his numbers um would lead you to believe and i'm really happy to see that he's turning around um so far with tanner scott who was actually my breakout pick uh he's only thrown three and two-thirds innings but the strikeouts are there. He struck out four batters so far against two walks. Um, has not allowed a run yet, so or has not allowed an earned run yet, not been charged with a run, so hopefully we uh, see him improve. Um, yeah, the bullpen right now looks good, and I really think that even if Givens does go later in the year, that could still be a strength on the team, particularly if Dylan Tate or Hunter Harvey get healthy at some point, or if one of the names we talked about earlier, like Zimmerman, gets added down the road from Bowie. Yeah, you got all those guys who I think could come up and really help. And I, I like Tanner Scott's stuff a lot this year, too. And I think his slider ranks as one of the top. The Fangraphs has his sliders, one of the most valuable sliders in, in all of baseball, as far as relievers go this year already. So 
Again, I know it's all early, but that's that's good to see these guys turning around. Like maybe I think I, I wrote this on the board that maybe with with all of this, if the Orioles end up with a decent season, or you see guys like Scott and Castro, uh, Rio Ruiz, if you see these types of players break out this year or have really good years, like I think that says a lot about this system and says we can really trust this system. Like imagine what they are doing down in Bowie with Grayson Rodriguez and DL Hall type players. If at the major league level we can turn Rio Ruiz and Miguel Castro into you know positive players, yeah, it's a great point. So I did want to circle back to this because Nick had brought it up in the show. This is from uh, an Orioles uh, inbox on their website, um, and it was a rundown of the players who are arbitration eligible after this year. Uh, the first year eligible is a pretty long list. Son Armstrong, Anthony Santander, Pedro Severino, Pat Vileka, Astro Wojciechowski, and Renato Nunez. Michael Givens will be the only third-year eligible player. Second-year eligible will be Trey Mancini, Hanser Alberto, and Miguel Castro. So and definitely an interesting group there. Yeah, I think you see a lot of guys who get traded out of that list. The Sean Armstrong, uh, maybe even the Severino. You know, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but give Chancisco more playing time. Uh, so give chance a chance. Yeah, <laughs> Severino could be a trade option. I think his contract is up, or he's arbitration eligible. So, I'm, are the Orioles going to want to go through that with him? I don't know. And Sean Armstrong has actually been really good for the last two seasons. So, I, th- I think a team comes calling for him as well. And whatever you can get out of him would be great if you can turn turn Mike Wright into a end up being a lottery type prospect that you get back for Sean Armstrong. That's that's a good deal. So Yeah, I know Luke Seiler, who just got hired by the Orioles in the offseason, uh saw something in Sean Armstrong and even noted on Twitter before he got hired like a couple changes he could make to even get better and maybe he's been part of why he's looked so good early this year. I don't know. But yeah, I think there might be some not non tender candidates in the offseason that might make Orioles fans scratch their heads, but Hopefully they can, at very least, maybe they'll trade them like a VR trade where they get less than people want, but they at least get something out of them. Yeah, and I said uh, Joe Trezza, the Orioles, wrote that. Uh, so definitely, like we were saying, an interesting group. Uh, Severino, I do want to talk about for a minute because San Francisco is really hitting well right now. And that was someone that I know we were all a little skeptical about coming into this year. But... Do you think going forward, and I'll start with you, Nick, do you think that Brandon Hyde relies on him a little bit more? And if so, do you think he gets consistent at bats behind the plate, or does Hyde take advantage of having three catchers and maybe start moving Cisco around a little bit? I don't know what he's going to do. I. It seems like maybe with Severino, you know, he's obviously your best overall uh guy behind the dish and at the plate he Severino's also been hitting the ball pretty well this year and again if you're gonna if you're saying that you're going out to win ball games this year I think Severino may give you that best opportunity but when you're talking about development looking at the long term you got to give Chance Cisco that opportunity just because Severino's not going to be around I don't think much longer um with his contract running out and just his age right now uh I think Cisco's a little bit younger but Cisco was that former top prospect, uh, a homegrown top prospect. I know Severino was as well, but Cisco is a guy who the Orioles have put a lot of time and effort into. And with this year, you know, when he catches behind the plate, I don't notice he's there, which is the highest praise I think you can give Chance Cisco this year. You don't know he's back there because usually it's clear who is behind the plate because there's balls always bouncing off the bricks behind the plate. But he's hitting the ball hard. His average exit velocity is 96.6 miles per hour. He has a 647 on base percentage. Like, that's absurd. That's not going to stick, obviously. But, you know, I think he needs to be back behind the plate more. I don't know. Changing positions, I'm going to say at this point, they're not going to do it. They've spent the last four years working on his catching. I don't think they're going to move positions. So he needs just regular at-bats. That's all he needs. But I don't think he's going to get it right now. Maybe once it's clear they're, they're out for good this year in the standings, maybe Hyde goes to him. But... Yeah, I mean, if we're in enough doubleheaders, he'll get playing time just on that alone. Uh, I've been calling for like over a year now that I think in a perfect world, he could be a guy that 
can play a little first base, second base, left field, third catcher, emergency catcher, DH. Just get his bat in the lineup. He's got a great approach. He's starting to turn on the ball now. He's. I just think there's so much potential there. I don't know if he'll ever let it all click together, but I just feel like he could be like a Ben Zobrist type potentially, but it doesn't seem like maybe maybe they just think it's not possible, but I don't know. I think it's it sucks that he's limited to a backup catcher role who gets in two games a week the way he's hitting the ball. Yeah, it's hard to limit Severino's playing time, and I think that's one of the issues that Brandon Hyde's dealing with. I don't I don't think you would see that move to first base or second base necessarily during a season. But I do think that, especially with having Brian Holiday on the roster, so you have a third catcher, um, it might be worth getting Cisco more at-bats between first base and DH, maybe alternating him and Severino, especially if Chris Davis has not got going this year. Yeah, I thought that was weird when they brought up Holiday, And I believe the... I can't remember what move precipitated that, but uh, I know it was a pitcher, I believe. Uh, but then you bring up Holiday. Cody Carroll, that's, my beloved. Yeah, that's right. So you get rid of a pitcher, a bullpen arm that you need, and then you bring up a catcher. I thought a trade was going to happen soon after that. I thought maybe this is it. They're moving Severino, but that hasn't been the case yet. But I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Let's just go. Yeah. I guess it's a good problem to have, you know, a guy you wish could get more playing time because he's hitting the ball well. Orioles haven't had that problem in a while. Very true. Yeah, and it's been a while since we've been able to really say optimistic things about Cisco's bat, but I think it's warranted right now. He's getting on base. We're seeing signs that he still has room to develop with his power. That's always been one knock on Cisco is that even if the average and the on-base tools are there, the power's not going to be. And I, I don't think he's all of a sudden going to turn into a power hitter overnight, but maybe we at least see him hit enough doubles, drive the ball into the gap a little bit more, that now you're not just relying on him to hit singles around and draw walks. Yep. So we uh, covered a lot today, but a lot going on as the Orioles continue their season, continue adding their player pool, uh, moving players around a little bit more, and hopefully um, – in the coming weeks, we will have a show discussing the debut of Ryan Mountcastle. But uh, until then, we've covered a lot of ground today. Before we uh, finish up here, Bob, any thoughts of anything we didn't cover you want to discuss? Yeah, I think I'd like to give a shout-out to Mo Gabba. I, th- I think he passed since our last recording, and I thought it was awesome what the Orioles did on the home opener on the scoreboard before the game and just seemed like an amazing kid with the – great perspective on life and he made the most of it and you just shout out to him and his family condolences yeah absolutely a really tough loss uh for his family and for you know baltimore sports both the orioles and the ravens put together really touching tributes for him uh nick any final thoughts yeah that the home opening ceremony was just had me all over the place and, and then you have john means uh, with his dad passing away this week it's it's a lot of you know sad news around Baltimore, and it sucks that we can't like all go to Camden Yards and celebrate this, and celebrate their life uh, of these people, these members of Birdland. And I, I just think to opening day 2021 is going to be something really special. I think in Baltimore, pray that we can go and we're there by March or April of next year. But um, you know, I think to follow all of that up, I hate to follow this up with more baseball talk, but. Renato Nunez just hit a home run, and he now has five on the year. So there's there's our bet there. Come on, Rio, get your shoulder back in gear. And uh, for for reference, we're discussing our episode from a couple of weeks ago where we went down and we made predictions for the year. <laughs> Who would lead the team in home runs with one of them? Nick and I both went with Renato Nunez. Bob picked Rio Ruiz, which looked like a great pick for about the first week of the season, but now Nunez is starting to catch up there. Chalk eaters. <laughs> well, we'll uh, we'll re-explore our predictions uh, later in the year, but uh, for now, we'll see how things unfold. Um, Bob, Nick, thank you for being on today. For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this has been Zach Spedden. Continue to follow us on Twitter at BSL on the Verge, um, and look for stories on Baltimore sports and life covering college sports, the Orioles, and the Ravens. Bob and I both had new articles this week. Nick will have one coming up on Sunday. 
uh, join us on the discussion board, and uh, we will see you next week. If you're updating your closet for summer, you need dependable clothes that you can wear anywhere, whatever you're doing. And for that, you can look to American Giant. American Giant makes clothing of exceptional quality for people who want something more than the status quo offers. Whether you need to re-up on reliable everyday t-shirts, pick up a solid pair of shorts, or invest in a pair of durable jeans, American Giant is a better choice. They make everything right here in the USA, from start to finish. So when you buy from American Giant, you become part of creating jobs and improving local communities in towns and cities all across the country. And keeping things local ensures the kind of quality you'll feel and appreciate for years to come. Shop your new summertime closet staples at American-Giant.com and get 20% off your order when you use code WA23 at checkout. That's 20% off at American-Giant.com with promo code WA23. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.